Hi, I'm Chris McBrien, a Gen Xer, and the pop culture from my generation is awesome. And I'm Yance Eaton, a millennial, and the pop culture from my generation is dope. Episode 58, Taxi Driver, Movie Review. Chris McBrien, and this is Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. And Yancey Eaton is in the house. Yancey, you know, I was thinking about something, my, my brother. What's that? In order for me to be more hip to your generation, oh, God. I decided <laughs> I decided that maybe it might be a good idea if I use some millennial terms throughout this entire episode. And we'll just see how it goes. What do you think? Oh, God. What up, fellow youngsters? Like, <laughs> <laughs> Well, I want to be more in, t- in touch with you kids, you know, so uh, we'll see how it goes. Anyway, I did want to mention something. Uh, Yancey, you sent me a picture recently of yourself. You texted to me when you, you showed me how you were helping to rebuild your store. And I got to say, man, you're, you are fat. I am what? You're fat. Fat? Yeah, fat. But not fat, like overweight. I mean, P-H-A-T, like the kids say. Remember, I'm trying to use millennial terms. How's it going? Oh is it good? Is that how? Chris, you're about 15, 15 years too late on the fat. I'm <laughs> well, I will try throughout the episode to drop a couple millennial terms on you, and we'll see how it goes. Are you ready to get started? I'm ready, man. Let's do it. Okay, faux shizzle. I wanted to go back and watch The Love Boat. I'm going to give you a lot of reasons to think I'm nerdy tonight. I've never actually watched ALF. Jerry Seinfeld's mother. We were actually just talking about ALF in my house last week. And I knew you'd be on my side about all this. Chris, he normally has the textbook answer. The Love Boat. He obviously has not read the science fiction textbook. Very cool. But is it, Chris? But is it cool? I'll settle down, young man. I do love this movie. And yes, Yancey, it is cool, by the way. Okay, so uh, this week I was able to nominate uh, a movie to you, Yancey, and I decided to go with uh, Taxi Driver. I'm not talking about that Queen Latifah sh- uh, that came out with a couple years ago. I'm talking about the 1976 classic film. I, I believe it's a classic anyway. So uh, you had never seen the movie, is that correct? Uh, I thought we were reviewing Queen Latifah's Taxi Driver. <laughs> oh, man, I knew this was <laughs> I kid. I kid. No, I, I had never seen it before. We mentioned in the trivia question a couple episodes ago with Caveman that, um, you know, I, I know of it. I know that it's important and that it's significant and it's referenced a lot, um, but I'd never actually gotten around to seeing it. No, so, well, that's good. That's one of the good things about doing this podcast is we get a chance to watch each other's, you know, films from our gener- different generations. That kind of thing. Funny that you mentioned Caveman because I do recall when he was on the show that episode and he did say that he didn't really care for Taxi Driver all that much. So I thought it'd be interesting to get your, your take on things because we've we mentioned before i think you've mentioned it the most is that you and caveman tend to have a more similar taste in in pop culture uh so it'll be kind of interesting your take on this so initial take takeaway from watching the movie uh yes no good bad what was your take well let me just say that when you say that we have similar tastes in music in pop culture and music and movies that means a good taste like he likes good <laughs> movies like i do so that's right oh man um, throwing shade on me yeah. Uh, Chris, I'm, I'm not going to lie. This was one of the best movies I've ever seen. Yeah, and I, I don't mean to to kind of, uh, you know, just patronize you or to tell you what you want to hear or tell the audience what you want to hear. But um, I put this movie on my my TV. I rented it. And, um, you know, it's on a 60 inch screen TV and I have, you know, the, the sounds blaring and everything. And I just remember for two something hours, I can't remember exactly how long the film was. I was just completely enthralled with this where like there were so many different scenes and so many different moments where I thought something very, very drastic was going to happen and it didn't. Or, mm-hmm. you know, I was just so immersed in the scene and I was so immersed in the cityscape and just the grunge and the lived in like realistic feel of New York 
City. Like it felt like a one of the most accurate time capsules of like life in a specific point in time that I ever remember seeing in a film. Everything felt so real. How the how the characters interacted with each other, the scenes, the actual you know everything. Just I, there was every every single part of this movie I loved and I got and I was just so 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 invested with it. And I'm not gonna lie, I wasn't expecting that. I thought this was gonna be just a really kind of like a doldrum, you know, uh, very minimal dialogue, just lots of like scenes and like you know very introspective. But it wasn't. It was it was all these things wrapped up in one. And I know this is kind of like a long answer, but I was just super impressed from top to bottom with it. It's a beautiful film. It definitely is. Now, so what's your what was your take on Scorsese, I guess, before you went into this movie? From a millennial point of view, you've probably only known him for his more recent movies like The Departed and Wolf of Wall Street and things like that. Maybe Hugo, The Aviator. So what was your take on this movie? Because this is really different from them, those movies, that's for sure. He's definitely, you know, sort of, um, you know, changed as a director over the years. So, mm-hmm. so, um, so did this, are you glad that I kind of introduced you to some classic Scorsese? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I've, I've seen The Aviator. I've seen The Departed. Those are fantastic standalone films. The Aviator, I think when it came out, it was it was kind of a commercial failure. I don't think it did quite as well as people had anticipated. But that's one of those films where I think in 15 or 20 years, we're going to look at it much higher than we do now. If that makes sense. You know, mm-hmm. like one of those films that will kind of have legs and it'll have a second life, you know, decades from now. Um, but I've never, you know, Scorsese, he, he, it's one of those names where everybody knows who it is and you know that he's important. He's done a lot of work. But unless you've actually kind of like delved into, uh, you know, some of his earlier work, like you never really know what he's about. And that's kind of where I was at, too, where I didn't know the, the cultural significance of all these other films. I knew of the more recent ones. I knew that Wolf of Wall Street was really, really good. But I just didn't have that attachment to him like I do you know, like a, a Christopher Nolan or a Steven Spielberg. I, I just didn't have that personal one-on-one relationship with his movie. So this kind of like got my eyes open. Like I want to look at his whole filmography. Like I want to see everything that he's done and kind of like really explore this guy because there was a lot of magic in this film. There's another one that I'll get you to watch uh, in, in the, you know, accompanying episode for sure. And that's Raging Bull because I still think Raging Bull is his best picture that he's ever made. But this is close. I really like Taxi Driver a lot. And like you mentioned, like right from the beginning, like, you know, the movie starts out, it's like these clouds of steam and all the neon mm-hmm. lights and it's almost like a dream like kind of setting that's going on and then it progresses obviously in this story about Travis Bickle who basically is slowly going crazy and the movie to me is like it's kind of like a how can I say it's almost like what like a bad car accident like you, you want to look away but you know you just can't bring yourself you got to look at it mm-hmm. and it's like this to me this movie feels like a bad nightmare that you're kind of trapped inside of and the, it's so funny because you got Travis Bickle, who's the kind of guy that you probably cross, you know, over to the other side of the street to avoid him. And yet Scorsese has him front and center as basically the protagonist of the film. And mm-hmm. the thing is, though, is that this is not a character study because we don't really know much about this guy. We don't know where he's from. You know, we don't we don't know. We don't know. You know, we don't really know much about him at all. Right. And uh, right. But it's just so many interesting things happen. So um uh, I guess a couple of things we could uh, go into. Um, so some of the themes in the movie that I thought were interesting. Um, obviously, um, well, well, I think we'll come back to this because I really think that this movie influenced, and I don't know about this for sure, but I'm sure this movie must have influenced Tarantino 
incredibly so. Like, and I can it, see that. Just especially that for the also. end, especially the end of the movie, which we'll come back to in a bit because the end is really, really wonderful. But, you know, just this whole, you know, character and like how this, his relationship with women, I think is very, very interesting because he just can't connect with any women. But, you know, uh, then even when he gets close to one, Betsy, right? And then, you know, she finds out like he's really strange and, you know, it's it, it, totally his own doing, of course. Like, and, and it's funny, he has that first date with her and it's relatively normal when they go for pie. And then on the next date, he takes her to go see a porn, pornographic film. So he's like really, he's just odd. And it's just, it's funny. He's got like these sexual frustrations going on because then he's also driving around in a cab. And then, you know, he's cleaning out the backseat of his taxi. You know what I mean? Like there's hookers mm-hmm. all around him and he, he keeps going back to 42nd Street and Times Square. And and then that whole fair that he picks up about the guy in the backseat talking about shooting the the girl in the genitals and all that, like that horrible. And, and by the way, did you recognize who the, who the, that actor was i did but not at first it was because i did you know for the trivia questions that we're gonna do in a later segment i found out exactly who it was it was scorsese it was scorsese interesting the actor that was supposed to play it i think got sick or something at the last minute so scorsese sat in and played that which was marty was a really martin scorsese was a really uh high strung kind of guy back then and i you know i think he was probably Mm -hmm you know, involved in a lot of a sort of, oh, I want to say drugs, but I mean, you know, it probably was. Um, so he just seemed very, very high strung. And that part, oh, it was just chilling. I thought that he played that. But uh, um, so obviously, I, I don't know if you're aware of this either, by the way, just as a, a bit of an aside. Um, but obviously Bickle becomes obsessed with Betsy and he tries to assassinate Palatine, right? He's like, guys like running for president or something. In 1981, um, John Hinckley Jr., tried to assassinate President Reagan at the time. And it turns out that he was obsessed with Jodie Foster and he was trying to impress her by assassinating the president in some, in his mind, some sort of bizarre reenactment of this film. <laughs> so I don't know. So I don't know if you ever knew about that or heard about that, but. Uh, no, I didn't. No. Yeah. It's just, uh, I don't know. Just, it's, I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm like you, like I really love. So what were some of the, the themes that you liked about the movie? I like the idea of him driving around and seeing all this filth, which you mentioned, by the way, the filth that you see everywhere. There was a garbage strike in New York at the time. And so all that garbage you see everywhere. It's, it's real. You Damn know? it, Chris! You're you're making trivia so difficult. This is <laughs> oh have, man, I'm sorry. This is why I have to write like 15 questions because by the time we actually get through the first part of the podcast, like you've basically said everything that I want in the trivia. Um, but so, yeah, so, so in other I words, did, I didn't know that either. But so in other words, I'm totally on fleek. You are. Oh my god! Please stop. <laughs> Just call me the goat, right? Um, just... I want to give you credit, Chris, but like all of these. All these like you know phrases and catchphrases that you're saying, like they were popular like years ago. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I know. What can I say? Yes. Yeah. Um, anyways, so like talking about themes, um, yes, yes. I think I think I think the main theme of this movie is loneliness and kind of like the propagation of loneliness itself. And it's not so much about like. Um, you know, like the city is a big part of it, but like it's really just about like you like you mentioned, slowly watching this one individual person who we don't really know a lot about other than, you know, he's an ex-Marine and he drives a taxi cab and he doesn't you know, really have a lot of social attachments. That's really all we know is that this is a guy who is, you know, slightly disturbed. He's probably dealing with some sort of, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder. You know, he was in Vietnam and he's just incredibly, incredibly isolated. And um, I, I don't want to get into to, too much specifics, but um, from a personal standpoint, I had insomnia for about a year and a half, almost two years. And I was down to 130 pounds at six foot, almost six foot two, six foot one. Um, and I was really, really unhealthy. And I would go days and days without sleeping. It was a really dark time in my life. And I tried everything. So I can kind of relate to him in that sense where like he's just, 
he just cannot go to sleep and it, it alters your mind in so many different ways. I can understand that. And I also had a friend who was a very, very close family friend of ours who actually kind of did unravel. And, and at this point now, he actually lives in a group home that assists with like uh, people who are mentally disabled. And um, that's kind of where he's at now, where he's not the same person he was before. And uh, it's kind of weird seeing this because, you know, Robert De Niro's depiction of this guy, this character, Travis Bickle, it's I, I don't want to say it's it's hyper realistic, but there was never a point in this where I felt like he was trying too hard or, you know, like Dustin Hoffman and in, in, in Rain Man, like he's he does such a good job of being, you know, in that state of mind while actually not like just over exaggerating every single intricacy of like what it is to have that type of condition. And I think Robert, you know, did a really good job of this where, you know, you, you truly believe that this is a man that is completely deranged. He's detached from reality. Um, you know, like I said, painfully lonely dealing with all these different, you know, internal struggles. You, you mentioned his frustrations with women where he can't ever truly connect to women of the opposite sex. Like, um, there's just a lot going on here and the way he delivers it, his acting performance is just, it's so, so captivating. And I've, I've always known that Robert De Niro was a good actor and, you know, I've never seen the Godfather, which I know is really, really bad, really, really bad. And we'll have to watch that too, but oh, I'll get you um, to watch that one for sure. Yeah. I, I've seen a bunch of De Niro films where I thought like, yeah, you know, he's a pretty good actor, but it never blew me away to where I thought, you know, this is one of the preeminent actors of the last 25 or 50 years. Whenever I watched this though, like I said, I was just so incredibly captivated by how realistic it was, how, how believable his character was and how just like just in it he was, you know what I mean? It, it really, it really took my breath away. Well, like I said, I'll get you to watch a, you know, all, some of his movies, you know, as we go on doing this podcast, but this one would definitely be one, uh, Godfather two, he was good in, but to me, oh man, when you watch raging bull, then you're going to be like, okay, now I get why Robert De Niro is a legend, you know, like but I, to me that his two best movies are, uh, are Scorsese's best movies and that's taxi driver. And, um, um, and Raging Bull, that's for sure. It's interesting, yeah, the, the insomnia part, like he obviously starts driving the cab at night because he can't sleep, right? And mm -hmm. the whole feel of the film, especially those night scenes around the city, it's almost ethereal. Like it, it's almost dreamlike, I guess, like, like nightmare-like, I guess. And yeah, he, he you, you, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, you you touch on this, not to cut you off, Chris, but you yeah, touched no. on this at the very top of the podcast where you were talking about like, you know, like a, like a dream state. Yeah. There were so many scenes in this movie, Chris, where like, my mind was almost trying to like fill in the holes and, you know, and, and, and basically I was trying to outsmart myself and be like, oh, he's dreaming here or, or this isn't really happening. I, I was so spellbound by what was actually real and what was a dreamlike state. You know what I mean? Like I felt like my own perception of what was going on was mirroring that of Robert De Niro's character where I, I wasn't sure what was real. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and even uh, he mentions um, at one point he says, I'm God's lonely man. You know, oh, so like God, that's painful. <laughs> yeah, like like it's oh yeah, no, definitely good. Um, I want to talk about two scenes. And remember, we talked before about films versus movies. This definitely falls in the film category for me. The way that Scorsese uses the medium uh, to tell the story, and there's two scenes in the movie that just have always stood out to me. And and so the first one is the scene when remember after he takes Betsy uh, to the porno film and he, he offends her, right? And remember he right. goes and calls her from the payphone. Do you remember that? Oh, scene? He's, yeah, on, yeah, and he's, he's talking to her, and the camera pans away. Yeah, he's, 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 he's oh talking to her, and he's trying to make up with her. Well, maybe we can go out again. Maybe we can go out sometime. Maybe we can go out sometime. And, and and Scorsese has said himself that that scene is the most important scene in the film because just like you say, the camera kind of dollies to the right, 
and she's turning him down, right? And mm-hmm. it, the camera moves away and shows the long corridor. I think it's almost like to say that watching Bickle get rejected is just—it's just—it's too hard for you, for the audience to watch. It's just—it's too much yep. for the viewer, you know. But then during the shootout scene in the murders at the end of the movie, everything is shown. In like great detail, like when he shoots uh, Matthew the pimp, and he shoots like remember the, the guy's leaving, and he shoots him in the hand, and then he gets shot in the neck and the arm, and he goes in the room. There's some random guy there, he blows his brains all over the wall, like right in front of of her, and yeah. then the camera then even moves up like through the ceiling to show the whole bloody scene. But watching him get rejected is just too hard to see. But isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? Yeah, it's like that's why. Yes. Oh, it's so incredible. The fact that the, the the camera pans away from him, too, and shows that long haul, like you said, it's almost like okay, this is a different path that he now has to take. He's been turned down, so he's going to take a different path. It's mm-hmm. oh, I don't know. Oh, it's just incredible. Incredible. It was powerful, and it was it, that scene, Chris. Like, like I didn't know that Scorsese's. You know, he said that that was actually the most pivotal scene in the movie. But for me, watching that as somebody you know who who tried his luck at dating and, you know, obviously got rejected at times. Like I, I felt that internal strife, like that personal struggle that he was dealing with. It was super, super painful. It was very, very awkward. And this was a guy where you, you, you almost feel bad for him because like, you know, a normal person would say, yeah, you know, it's your second date and you took her to, you know, like a, 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 a an X-rated film, like what were you thinking? But he, he genuinely didn't think that that would be a problem. He didn't. He didn't find any sort of issue with that whatsoever, you know. And so this is a guy who wasn't trying to be creepy. He wasn't trying to be, you know, over the top or turn her off or anything like that. But you know, he was just genuinely weird and having to reconcile that and in hearing it over the phone and hearing this girl basically become completely disenfranchised with him. It's it's painful. It's it's like you said. It was it was a turning point in the film because it's just this a visceral reaction action that you see and 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 that subtle just pulling away of the camera and like going down like a blank corridor like you know all it all it said to me was just like despair you know what i mean like there's there's only one pathway that this guy can go down and it's a lonely corridor where there's nobody else and it was just i don't know it was just incredibly incredibly heartbreaking it's funny when the movie came out obviously critics loved it audiences really took to the film as well um the academy took notice so it got nominated for four academy awards in 1976 uh it was nominated for best picture it lost to rocky uh, man that was a good year for movies too because network and all the president's men wrote that year too um de niro was nominated for best actor he lost to peter finch in network i get it i mean you know finch's performance is pretty iconic and he died earlier in the year so the academy gave him to him you know posthumously but um jodie foster was nominated for best supporting actress um she lost to beatrice Strait. um you know beatrice Strait. she was in network but you might know her you have you ever you i think you've told me you've seen poltergeist right and i'm talking about the original I've original. seen Poltergeist once, yeah, okay. years and years ago. No, Beecher Strait was in that. And then um, the the film was also nominated for Best Score, Bernard Herrmann. He lost it to The Omen, but uh, this was Herrmann's last film. And um, Herrmann was really good, too, man. He did a lot of stuff with Hitchcock. Uh, he did Psycho and Vertigo, which, Yancey, I know you like those, those movies. So, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, like I say, critics really loved it. Audiences loved it. I've got a couple questions for you when it comes to this movie, if I could. Sure. So the first question. Last episode, we were reviewing Children of Men, your film that you nominated. And I asked you this question, and I'm going to ask this again of Taxi Driver. The end of the movie, and this might sound crazy, but is the end of the movie a downer or is it in any way positive or hopeful? Or how did you interpret the ending? Um, man, honestly, I, I wish I had more time. Normally, I try to watch the films that you suggest 
Destiny twice. I'll watch them like one or two days after we do the podcast, and then I'll watch them again, you know, maybe that Thursday or Friday before we record. So it gives me kind of a chance to like revisit things. And, you know, I'll do some reading and I'll, I'll try to do a little bit of back, you know, research and stuff to kind of see, you know, what are some of the major themes that I maybe didn't catch up on the first time. And whenever I watch this, I like I said, I didn't have a time to go back through and rewatch the ending. But I remember feeling almost cheated. Like I was expecting this film to go one certain way. And, you know, it's it seems so definitive that, you know, this was a guy that was going to go out and he was going to go out on his terms, but it was going to end abruptly for him. This was a guy that was, you know, he was radicalized and like his thought process. And he was basically succumbing to the fact that he was going to die you know, killing these people and to see like all of a sudden he's a hero and he's applauded by Iris's parents for returning, you know, their daughter to them. And, you know, he gets written up in like the local paper. It almost feels like, you know, this is a guy who technically did kill multiple people and there's never any sort of, you know, recompense for that. Like he's just, you know, all of a sudden he's, he's on the up and up and he's okay. And he makes up with, you know, Betsy. And I don't know, it, it left me not knowing what to feel. You know what I mean? There's so many points in this film where I, like I mentioned at the top of the show where I thought it was going to go a certain way. Like whenever Scorsese's character was in the backseat saying he's going to kill that woman up there in the building, you know, I thought for sure, I'm like, well, this is definitely the turning point. This is where, um, you know, Travis is going to kill this guy right in his car. He's going to strangle him or he's going to shoot him or, you know, there were other scenes where I'm like, oh, he's definitely going to kill this senator. And it just never happened. And then for the end of like this, like I said, for him to to go into this, you know, this this house, this I don't want to say whorehouse. It's a little offensive, but to go into this house and to it's kill multiple a chicken, people. You call it a chicken ranch. A chicken ranch. Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. <laughs> to go into this chicken ranch. You never um, heard that. You never heard that expression before. I have not. You you hang out at different places <laughs> than I do. Apparently. <laughs> oh man, Hundo P. It's called a chicken ranch. Yeah. Trust me. Interesting, but um, so I, I I just didn't expect it like this. Like I said, like it it felt destined that this was a guy who was going to succumb to mental illness and was eventually going to take his life or he was going to die at the hand of you know the people that he's trying to kill and then like i said it, it completely uprooted me from like what i was expecting whenever like you see like i said all of a sudden he's recovered he's alive he's he's regarded as a hero by a lot of different people and I it left me not knowing what to think, to be completely honest with you. I mean, what what, what were your thoughts on the ending? Well, I, I think it's interesting you mentioned how he becomes a hero, because just like you said, you know, you see the press clippings and then, you know, Iris went back home to her father. And and really what it comes down to is is Travis kind of liberated her, right? You know, by exacting retribution on her pimp. But I'm wondering, like, I always wonder, like, did he mean to liberate her the whole time? Because it's kind of tough to say, because he if, if he was successful in assassinating the, the senator, like... He he probably would have been killed by the Secret Service, right? As it was, the Secret Service suspected him. So then he ended up running away, and then he just sort of turned his attention on Iris's pimp and his bodyguard, right? So, um, right. I've got a theory for you though, because you said that you didn't really like the way it ended. And then he's a hero, and he gets back together with Betsy. There's a theory though that suggests that the end of the movie is actually not real. That instead, Bickle dies after the shootout. And the end of the movie is just his dying thoughts. I think it was Roger Ebert, actually, that suggested that theory. But a lot of movie critics have kind of bought into it. But so the idea is that he died. You know, he got shot in the neck. That's wild. <laughs> so so it's just his, his he's almost dreaming as he, you know, slips into death. That, right. that oh, he's now a hero. And, and then he got Betsy back. And it's an interesting theory. And I think if you go back and watch the movie with that in mind, then you're going to be like, ooh, wait a minute, this has some merit, maybe. Like, you know, it's, 
Something to think so, about. Anyway. Yeah. So if we can accredit that ending that, you know, where he gets the letter from the parents and he's in the local paper and he makes up with Betsy, it's it's literally checking off all the boxes of like, what is the best possible outcome for this scenario? Right. All the things that he wants to happen in, in the in the absolute best case scenario, it all happens for him. And like you said, like. I didn't hear that. If I had a chance to do a little bit more research, I could have seen, you know, some more of these, you know, fan theories basically. But the idea that it is basically, you know, an end of life endorphin, you know, laced, uh, almost like a, a mirage before you actually pass away. And that's just us seeing like his last thoughts that his brain is conjuring up as he's dying. I mean, <laughs> that makes it, you know, from one of the most, you know, kind of confusing endings of all time to mm-hmm. one of the most badass instantly, you know, like if that is actually what happened, then I mean, that's, that's pretty amazing. I don't know if we'll ever get, you know, 100% clarity on that, but that's, I don't know. And I think that's, you know, you've always mentioned that you like movies that kind of have an ambiguous ending. And so maybe this would feed into that. Cause it, it just doesn't make sense. Like you, you go through this whole movie, it's this, you know, and it's funny. We talked before about these dystopian films and this one is like, it's, you know, like this, this nightmarish world and it's a kind of a downer. It's all about, you know, this guy that's lonely, like we said, and, you know, and he's kind of, you know, disenfranchised from society and he slowly goes mad and then he gets rejected by the girl. And so then he goes and it's this violent, violent, violent ending. And it offers and no the, recourse. Yeah. It just shows like the, what is the plight of this one guy by himself? This one isolated, mentally disturbed guy. It's, it's, it is like, it, it is 100% a nihilistic film until the very end, which it, yeah. it, it just seems like a huge contradiction of everything exactly. that was building up the entire time. It, it left me, honestly, Chris, like the, the very ending, it left me so, um, I don't know what the word is, but just like, I just felt like a, a wandering soul just like looking for answers. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like I really didn't know what I was supposed to feel. And I almost felt like I missed the boat on this. I'm like, wait, wait, that's the ending? Like what – you, you know what I mean? Like I was literally struggling to, to to find like meaning in the end of the film. It was it was wild. I've never experienced something like that in a movie. Hmm. Oh, there you go. Uh, so again, maybe if you get a chance, go back and watch the movie again with that in mind on the end. Just mm-hmm. because, yeah, like you say, the end of the movie, all of a sudden, like, like all this sort of awful stuff is happening, super violent ending. And then all of a sudden, the very, very end, it's like, it's super nice. Oh, everything's good. Mm-hmm. He's a hero. Gets the girl back. Well, that doesn't make any sense, right? So that was my one question was about the end of the movie. Um, the second question I have, and we've addressed this issue on past episodes of the podcast here, but Yancey, do you think this movie could get made today? I do. I do. Um, I. It's one of those things where, I mean, if you look every single year, the actor or actress that wins Best Actor or wins a Golden Globe, or they're always playing something where either they're they had to lose a lot of weight or they had to gain a lot of weight or they're playing mentally disabled people or they're playing somebody who's just completely deranged or the Academy, for whatever reason, like they really um, prop up those type of performances where you're basically stepping out of your element and becoming something entirely different than what you are. Um, and I think, uh, you know, like like we talked about last week, Chris, about how there is such a huge demand for these these kind of uh, dark you know, ominous films where it, it, it kind of seems like the whole world's coming to an end, or at least like the, the whole world for the main character is coming to an end. I do feel like this could be made. And um, the only thing that I would have qualms with was, you know, the whole, the whole Iris part, you know, like her basically being like a, you know, a child sex slave. Um, I think that would turn some heads for sure. Um, but ultimately I think in the, the sake of art, I, I think it would be allowed to be made, but 
um, definitely rated R. Definitely not something you would take your, you no. know, your child to see or something like that. But yeah, I do think it could be made. So my take is I don't think it could. I don't think okay. it could. And, 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 and because there was a bit of a movement that was going on back in the 70s, right? So the movie system itself was in flux. Like before that, movie making was always sort of a product of the studio system. Right. And, and you know all about that. Like, you know, studios were churning out films and they were responsible. You know, it was a studio system was in place and it started to change kind of in the uh, kind of in the late 50s and into the 60s. Things kind of changed. But then when it got into the early 70s, when Easy Rider came out in 1969, that movie Easy Rider was a game changer. It cost less than half a million dollars to make it grow 60 million at the box office. And suddenly there was this sort of deification of the director when it came to movies. Prior to that, like I said, the studios sort of ruled the roost when it came to making movies. Now, all of a sudden, you got this nobody, Dennis Hopper, who directed Easy Rider, and people start looking to the director as sort of the driving force behind film. So for me, this kind of led to a couple of things. One, it allowed kind of the the small name new directors to get projects off the ground like Scorsese did here with Taxi Driver um, another thing is Easy Rider sort of spawned the idea of the anti-hero you know as the lead character right and the last thing was and this I think is important is it when Easy Rider came out and was a success it made it okay to have a movie end on a downer you know instead mm-hmm. of having all the things wrapped up you know nice and tight and and so and so this movie sort of played on that and twisted it all around by having this super violent ending and then you know then flipped it back around again so i think i guess what i'm trying to say is when it comes to your millennial sort of dystopian films that we you know that you love so much and i'm always picking on you for i i think in a lot of ways you can thank these kinds of movies from the 70s as sort of paving the way for that type of for film. sure, yeah, but for sure. That um, and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to select it for us to talk about on the podcast. But that being said, I just don't know if this movie could get made today. A twelve-year-old prostitute, um, a, you know, this crazy taxi driver who decides he's going to exact, you know, this retribution on her pimp. Like I said, like I just, I just don't know if it would. I just don't know if it would or not. I'm glad it was made in 1976 because I love this movie and it's just, it's such an incredible film. And like I say, Martin Scorsese, um, he had trouble getting this off the ground originally. I mean, he'd only really done a couple of movies before that. He did Boxcar Bertha and he did um, Mean Streets. But I mean, to be able to get this off the ground, it was really tough. And it wasn't until he was able to get De Niro to sign on that it, you know, really took flight. But but obviously, you know, going back and watching this, you get get a really good appreciation, hopefully, of, um, of just some of the great films that came out of the 70s. Yeah, for sure. Um, I know we're wrapping it up now, but I just want to say that I found a lot of pleasure in just kind of the way that this film was shot, where uh, there were scenes where it was literally just like um like a close shot of, you know, like a, a the bumper of the taxi cab. And you just see like the cityscape and the lights bouncing off of it and hitting it like that. Um, there were all kinds of like really crazy shots where it's just people walking down the street or like you said, it was just, you know, it was just filth in the streets. It, it did such a good job of of kind of conveying what life was like in the city where, um, man, it's just, even if there were no acting in it and it were just like a, like a silent movie, I, I still think I would have gotten something out of this film just because all of the shots are so, so beautiful throughout this whole thing. And which is really surprising considering the time that this movie was made, the technology that they had to work with. And it was still just, it was just beautiful. Mm-hmm. So, um, so overall, uh, we've, we've mentioned this in the past, um, you know, on a scale of sort of one to 10, where would you, you place mm-hmm. this film? I would give this a real high nine, like a nine point 
seven, nine point eight. It's it's next to a perfect film. Like I said, um, I don't I don't knock a movie if I don't one hundred percent you know completely um, agree with or understand the ending. Um, it's going to take some personal reflection. This is definitely one of those films, Chris, where it's going to require multiple viewings. I think for me to fully uh, kind of grasp everything that that the film is trying to say. Um, but it's man, when you want to talk about one of the most you know just piercing, accurate. Um, just enthralling depictions of mental illness and what isolation looks like. And, you know, it's, it's such a prevalent thing right now. It's something that, you know, there's 7 billion people in the world and a lot of people, despite the fact that there's so many of us, a lot of people feel completely isolated from society and, you know, they're completely disenfranchised They're not integrated into daily, you know, life whatsoever. And, uh, this is just like a beautiful, you know, metaphor for that so oh, absolutely. It, it really is an amazing film and, and i'm really glad too like i said uh having cabin on the on the, the podcast recently and he said he didn't really like it that much and this is one that you agree with me instead of him so that's that's good too i maybe I'm mm-hmm. winning, maybe i'm winning you over i don't know maybe i'm getting you over here or maybe it's just fomo on your part i don't know <laughs> fear of missing out <laughs> yeah well, you know I'm, I'm a i'm young i'm hip and i speak the language of the streets okay i see that yeah okay time now to have some fun with yancey okay yancey it's over to you i nominated this film that means you get to pepper me with trivia questions on it so uh fire away Okay, like I said uh, before, I always have a bunch of questions. I, I've, <laughs> I've learned with Chris that I have to make a really long list because he's going to cover most of it during the show, so such is life. Um, all right, so the first question, you mentioned that Jodie Foster plays a 12-year-old prostitute in the film. How old was Jodie Foster when she actually played the part? I think she was 12. She was exactly 12. Yeah, okay. All right. That would have been a little bit more tricky, but it was not. Okay. All right. That's, so- that's a Fargan trick question. Oh, that's another <laughs> That's another uh, Gen X uh, movie you'll have to get you to watch. It's, yeah, it's lost on me, that reference. Yeah, Gen Xers out there going, I know what that's from. That's from Johnny Dangerously. Okay, anyway, go ahead. Okay, so any guess how much did Robert De Niro get paid for his Oh, I think I think he got paid 35 grand, and um, is that right? Is it 35 grand? It's exactly thirty five, and and what happened was he had he had settled on the the amount of money to be paid for the movie, but then The Godfather two came out and it really elevated his status. But he said, you know what, I'll just he, he could have actually kind of sort of battled for a bit more money, and he decided not to just to be able to get the project made. Yeah, that's what I read as well. And basically, the uh, the company themselves were they were worried because they they knew that he deserved more, but the. You know, the company was so hell bent on not making the film in the first place. Like it was basically, you know, like a long shot to make this film as is. And if De Niro asked for any more money, it wasn't going to get made. So it was just kind of cool that he actually honored that and made this film. And, you know, here we are talking about it Mm -hmm. however many years later. But okay, um, so I I was talking about Jodie Foster. So she was 12 years old whenever she was, you know, in this movie in Taxi Driver. There were a couple scenes where she actually required a body double because it was obviously too inappropriate for a 12 year old girl. Right. Can you name the actress that played her body double? I don't know her name, but it was her sister. It was her older sister. Yep, it was her 19-year-old sister, yeah. Connie Foster. Connie, okay, there you go. Okay, good job, Chris. You're no, really I, good at this. <laughs> okay, um, so who played... Actually, let me go down a little bit. You, you answer that, too. Okay, so you mentioned uh, Bernard Herrmann, right? He composed the entire score for this film. He did. Uh, and he died posthumously, but he was, re- he was awarded multiple awards for his work on the score. So what was the first film that he ever produced a score for? Well, you know, it's my favorite film of all time, and that would be Citizen Kane. Is it your favorite of all time? Yep. Interesting. Okay. I, I mentioned that when we did the film versus movie podcast, my favorite films of all time are Citizen Kane 
is number one favorite film of all time. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I kind of listed them off in that, but no, that's my favorite film. Not my favorite movie. My favorite movie is Star Wars, but my favorite film, quote unquote film is Citizen Kane. Yeah. Okay. You did say that. Okay. Love it. Love them. All right. So who was Martin Scorsese's first choice to play Travis Bickle? Ooh, that's a great question. Um, he had – it wasn't Dustin Hoffman there. He had looked at – he looked at a bunch of actors. Like Dustin Hoffman was in uh, Burt Reynolds and Warren Beatty and guys like that. But I don't know who was his first choice for it. I'm not 100% sure. You know what? I'm going to give you credit for that because it actually was Dustin Hoffman. Oh, it was Dustin Hoffman? Oh, okay. Good, good. Oh, Yeah, it was. I, I – actually mentioned him earlier in the show just to mm-hmm. kind of throw you off, but it was Dustin Hoffman. Okay, so in the coffee and pie scene in the diner, you yep. know which scene I'm, I'm yep. talking about, of yep. course, mm-hmm. uh, what topping, what weird topping does Travis order for his apple pie? He puts cheese on it. Melted cheese. Yep. Is that a thing? Is that a Canadian thing? What is no, that? I've never heard that. See, that's funny you mentioned that. I always thought that up here in Canada, we always thought that was an American thing, that you put like a slice of Cheese, I've heard of people doing that before. I've never wanted to try it. I think, if I'm not mistaken, was it Ed Gein? We've talked about Ed Gein so many times in this podcast. He was like a serial killer in Wisconsin. And I believe that he asked for his final meal before he was executed to have apple pie and cheese. And I think that was the inspiration for this character to eat that in that scene. But I always thought it was like an American thing. You don't put cheddar cheese on top of your apple pie? Down I don't. Seats? And with that Ed Gein comment, let me just... Scratch off the next trivia question. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, man. <laughs> it's okay. Um, um, all right. You so, know what? I, I just got. You know what? I got, I just got a Netflix and chill, and then let you do your thing. Oh my god! Let's see what I did. Do you there? have like these written down somewhere? Or are these no, are just, just pulling these from memory. Just pulling them out. Uh, sorry. All right, I got a couple more if we have time. Yeah, of course. Lay them on me. All right. So, which famous musician did uh, Robert De Niro credit as his inspiration for the improvised line of "Are you talking to me"? So he was at a concert, uh, and it was uh, it was the boss, Bruce Springsteen, had yelled that out at the concert, and it always stuck with him. God, man, are you reading like the same stuff I'm reading? Like this is no. so refreshing. I always think I'm going to stump you with these, but I really um, like this. Movie. I really like this film a lot, and I have for many, many years. And I, and I just, I don't know, I just love this stuff so. All right, let me see. I think I have one more that you haven't already answered. Uh, who was the first choice to play the part of Iris? Martin Scorsese actually mentioned this a couple times in interviews and on YouTube videos that I was able to pull up. I there was one actress that yeah. he was thinking of specifically, but uh, she actually backed down because she thought that the film was, quote, too weird. Was it Was it Melanie Griffith? God, yes! <laughs> that's, a, that's a sweep, Chris. Good job, oh, man. Wow. I really, really like this film a lot. And it's, uh, yeah, it's definitely, it's, it's definitely a classic. It's one I wanted you to watch. I'm really glad. I'm glad that we actually didn't watch the Queen Latifah movie about the same name and, and do I'm, that. I'm a little disappointed to be yeah, honest with you. Yeah, of course you are. You're a millennial. <laughs> you know, so, so, so obviously you enjoyed uh, watching this, the, this film. So uh, you don't have to give me one for next week because next week we'll come back with a top five and then we'll go from there. But, uh, but I'm glad that you liked it. That's good. And there's going to be some that you, that you like. There's going to be some you don't like. Same thing when you give me some of your movies from, from the millennial generation. I like some other ones. I don't, I usually surprise you with the ones I like and the ones I don't, but it's the way it is. But Hey, listen, if you have uh, anybody uh, wants to, you know, chime in on the conversation, uh, we're available on Twitter all the time, right? Yancey, we're at at Yancey Eaton and at C McBrien. Uh, you can always go to popcosureworld.com and you can find all of our contact information there. Shoot us an email. We answer everything. We're, we're good that way. Um, but uh, Hey, if you enjoy the show, uh, do me a favor. And if you're on iTunes, uh, make sure you leave a review for the podcast. We'd certainly appreciate that. That would be great. In the meantime, 
This is Chris McBrien for Yance Eaton saying thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Thank you for listening to the Pop Goes Your World podcast. Continue the conversation on Twitter at C. McBrien or at Yancey Eaton. Please consider leaving a review for the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download and listen to the show. 